just for my own curiosity, and really there's no other reason for it. How many of you were surprised I read the whole book of Song of Solomon last week? All right, that's good. Well, praise the Lord. Still got a little zinger here and there, so that's good. But it is a poem, and it's a song, and it's one unit. It's meant to be read that way. Um, I briefly contemplated doing that every week, but I think after 15 times, uh, I'd rather um, explain the word. But turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 2. And what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to read one representative text to kind of set up our direction for tonight as we continue introducing Song of Solomon. And I think this will be the, the last message we really need to introduce the book. Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 1, will kind of help us set our direction for tonight. Chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Very short verse. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. This is the bride, the Shulamite, or as we will begin to refer to her by a proper name, Shulamith. Shulamith is speaking, and she describes herself as a rose of Sharon. The plain of Sharon in Israel is part of the coastal land on the Mediterranean Sea. It's known for its tremendous for fertility and lush vegetation. Put it this way, the, the uh, plain of Sharon is the California coast of Israel. Very, very lush. And the rose of Sharon was considered basically a perfect flower. Something special, something beautiful. And this is how Shulamith refers to herself. And in fact, there is a hymn called the Rose of Sharon. Let me read you some of the lines. Lord Jesus, my sweet rose of Sharon, my prophet, my priest, my king. And then the chorus goes on to say, sweet rose of Sharon blooming above for me. The entire hymn takes the rose of Sharon to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in fact, the hymn includes a tremendously powerful gospel presentation. But it is the rose of Sharon of Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 1 actually speaking of Jesus. Maybe a better question, since Song of Solomon was written in the 10th century BC, some thousand years before Christ, would the original readers have taken this to be speaking of the coming Messiah? Well, this represents one of the great interpretive challenges of Song of Solomon that I'd like to look at tonight. Uh, many years ago, when I was in my 20s, I taught a small group Bible study through Song of Solomon, and I remember one particular older couple in that group, and I will never forget them as long as I live, because as we walked, frankly, through the text over the course of weeks, the husband's face was lit up with hope and delight, and his wife's face every single week looked like she was sitting through a torture session. And finally, she couldn't take it anymore, and she confronted me, one evening after Bible study, and she said, it's too bad you've missed the whole point of the book. It's about Christ and the church. It's written to Christians to see how loving God is. It has nothing to do with marriage. Her husband was standing right behind her when he said this, and I distinctly remember the look of delight and hope on his face falling into utter defeat in a look that said, oh, well, maybe things will be better in heaven. And having observed their marriage for some time, I read between the lines to make an educated guess that their marriage had long since lost the delight and love with which they had started. And so in a very real sense, how you view Song of Solomon has real life consequences. That there are consequences to this. This is not just a theological discussion. This impacts how you live your life. Now, last time we started introducing Song of Solomon and we covered some broad introductory thoughts. I just asked some questions. Why preach through Song of Solomon? I gave you 13 reasons just in case there was any doubt. How does Song of Solomon protect us from ungodly views of marriage? We talked about whether the challenges of preaching through Song of Solomon and whether some helpful hints to understanding Song of Solomon. Now, we'll have a little bit of overlap tonight, most likely, but what I primarily want to cover tonight gets into the interpretation issues related to this book. And these are important. And the reason I want to go over these is because if you study Song of Solomon at all on your own, you're going to come across a wide array of interpretive options. And I want to establish our position here as clearly as I can. And I put it this way, no other book in the Bible except the book of Revelation is weighed down with so many completely different interpretations and approaches. So I want you to understand with great clarity where we're coming from. 
And once again, I want to read the famous quote from Rabbi Akiba in the generation after Jesus lived. He wrote in the Mishnah, quote, The whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. All the writings are holy, and the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. So how are we to interpret Song of Solomon? Because once we get into the text, I'm going to only interpret it one way. And so I want you to understand what that is. I just want to give you five considerations tonight. And I don't know if this is as much a sermon as it is just a preparatory talk for you. But I'll give them to you up front and then repeat them as we go. Here are the five considerations. The supernatural structure of Song of Solomon. The popular positions on Song of Solomon. I'll repeat these also. The Christ comparison of Song of Solomon. The spiritual significance of Song of Solomon. And then just for fun, at the end, we'll end with the thrilling themes of Song of Solomon. So the supernatural structure, the popular positions, the Christ comparison, the spiritual significance, and the thrilling themes. We'll just spend a moment on the supernatural structure. The supernatural structure of Song of Solomon. There is a school of thought, and from what I can tell in the reading that I've done, it seems to be a little bit of the majority thought, maybe not by much, but the majority of thought, that says that Song of Solomon is a series of many different love poems, maybe written by Solomon, maybe written by some in his court, maybe written by lots of different people, that were eventually stitched together into kind of a compendium of semi-related love poems. And there are any number, some say there were seven, some say there were 27, and everything in between. I want to say up front, though, that that absolutely cannot be the case. That cannot be. This was one poem written by one author, How do we know this? Because the symmetry, the structure of Song of Solomon makes it very clearly one unit of thought by one person. And the complexity of the symmetry is so precise, so detailed, so filled with the tiniest embroidered design that the divine origin of this poem is absolutely obvious. This is a divine poem. No man could write this. Now we've talked before about the about chiastic structures in the Bible, and and we're going to get a little bit technical here for a moment, that when a section of Scripture forms what looks like the Greek letter key, which looks like an X to us, uh, the structure is named after the key, because if you can picture an X, uh, you can draw a line straight down from the, the upper left of the X down to the bottom left, and then you can draw lines going toward the center, and so that's where that structure is named. The center point of the chiastic structure is most often the main point. It's the theme, it's the motif, it's the entire reason for that particular section. Even more detailed, the very top portion, which matches with the very bottom portion, uh, are generally similar or same themes. The next part down and the next part up from the bottom, so to speak, are similar also, working all the way to the middle. Most chiastic structures in the Bible can be discerned with relative ease, with a little bit of practice. But Song of Solomon takes a chiastic structure, takes this precision, takes this symmetry to a whole different universe. Just watch this. And we're going to get a little technical, but I think you'll, you'll see the, the importance of this. First of all, the overall theme of the book, the main point the author wants you to get, turn to Song of Solomon 5. In chapter 5, the end of verse 1 is the geographic or what some call the quantitative center. It's the middle of the song. It is the point of the song. Chapter 5, verse 1, under the heading of others, right at the end of the verse, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's the point of the book to imbibe on the love relationship of marriage. And if you looked at what's happening before and what's happening after, that little section, that sentence is very clearly a dividing point. So you see a very simple chiastic structure. There's everything that comes before the main point and everything that comes after the main point. But the book also has basically seven major sections. See if you can hear the chiastic structure, the, the symmetry. I'll repeat it just to make sure. Chiastic structures are typically labeled with letters and then the same letters with a superscript number like A and A1 to represent the mirrored image. So a chiastic structure, in other words, would go like A, B, C, B1, A1. So just so you understand that. But listen to this. Section A, the beginning of the story. 
chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 7. I don't think you need to write all this down unless you just want to, but section B, an invitation to enjoy springtime before the wedding. Chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 17, and there is some overlap in the verses. Section C, a night of separation before the wedding. Chapter 3, 1 through 4. Section D, the center is the wedding day and wedding night. Chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 1. Section C1, we're working our way back down the X now. C1, a night of separation after the wedding. Section B1, an invitation to enjoy springtime after the wedding. And section A1, the conclusion of the story. Let me, let me put the letters together so you can get this. A, the beginning of the story. Section A1, the conclusion of the story. B, an invitation to enjoy springtime before the wedding. B1, an invitation to enjoy springtime after the wedding. C, a night of separation before the wedding. C1, a night of separation after the wedding. And D, the wedding day and night. And so now you have two layers of a chiastic structure. There's other variations on this seven-part structure, but most variations generally fall into that pattern or pretty close. As they say, but wait, there's more. Because within the seven parts, there's an individual, within each of the seven parts, rather, there's an individual chiastic structure in every one of them. But it's intricate and complex. I don't think you want to try and take notes on this. I just want to show you the divine origin of the book. Section A has its own A, B, C, D, E. Section A1 finishes at the end of the book with E1, D1, C1, B1, A1. So the, the whole book is mirrored, section A, section A1. Five mini-themes all mirroring each other at the beginning of the book, at the very end of the book. Section B has its own A, B, C. Section B1 finishes with a mirroring mirror C1, B1, A1 complementary themes. Then the sections C, D, the center, and C1 have their own complete chiastic structure encapsulated right in those sections completely. In other words, the whole book is one broad chiastic structure with chapter 5, verse 1, the second half at the center. Within that, there's a more detailed seven-part chiastic structure. Within that, the first two and last two sections form a more detailed chiastic structure. And within that, the middle three sections each have their own self-contained chiastic structure. 1 Kings 4.32 says of Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Out of the 1,005 songs or poems that Solomon wrote, no wonder this one is called the Song of Songs. It is a divine, supernatural work of art. The supernatural structure of Song of Solomon. Here's another consideration. The popular positions on Song of Solomon, and we'll spend some time on this. What are the most important most popular interpretive options. We need to look at this because as the most difficult book in the Old Testament to interpret, you have a right to know why we're going the direction we're going. I don't think it's fair to you to just start and you not know. There are seven major interpretive positions on Song of Solomon. I'm going to spend a lot of time on the first one and then the other six we'll kind of rifle through and then I'll kind of tell you where we're landing. Option one, the allegorical interpretation. And we're going to land on this for a few minutes. The allegorical interpretation interpretation that this is a picture generally speaking jews have taken song of solomon to be an allegory of the love between yahweh and israel and christians have taken song of solomon to represent the love between christ and the church there is some support for using a love story to speak of yahweh and israel since the book of hosea does this very openly and obviously with the interpretations of that metaphor being right there in the book and i'm going to read some sections later about that and of course the new testament uses marriage as a metaphor for christ in the church ephesians 5 husbands love your wives as christ loves the church revelation 19 we see the bride of christ at the marriage supper of the lamb in the targum targum are jewish aramaic translations of the old testament that were done between the first and third centuries a.d and kind of settled into one volume in the seventh or eighth century but in the targum Song of Solomon is an allegory of Israelite history beginning from the Exodus moving forward. That's their position. The first known Christian allegorization of Song of Solomon is in the commentary by Hippolytus of Rome in the 3rd century AD. 
And following him, you have Jerome, Augustine, and most widely known Origen, all interpreting Song of Solomon completely allegorically. These allegorized interpretations then take the visual images of Song of Solomon and begin to assign them meanings. I'll give you a few examples. That the kisses are the word of God. The dark skin of the woman, chapter, five, chapter 1, verse 5, is sin. The breasts of the woman represent the church's nurturing doctrine. The two lips of the woman are the law and the gospel. The army with banners in chapter 6, verse 4, is the church as the enemy of Satan. And there's endless variations and discussions of these assigned meanings of these images. Now, why is the allegorical interpretation, incidentally, even today, so very popular? Well, where did it come from? Well, during the time of the early church, there was a philosophical system based in what we call Neoplatonism and Gnostic theology, which said that there's a higher knowledge, there's a a higher level of existence in which the mind and the soul is seen as being trapped in the physical body. And the goal of these truths is to free the mind from the bondage of the body to partaking these greater ethereal truths of the spirit. And there were, according to these philosophical systems, primarily two things in the world that were seen as inhibiting the full knowledge of the spiritual realm, the the, the full understanding of the truly divine. Two things that imprisoned the soul in the physical body. That was food and sexuality, even in marriage. That those things were, were bad. They kept you from higher knowledge. The Apostle Paul punched this idea right in the nose. He hit it head on. 1 Timothy 4, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But this perception of reality is heretical. How do we know this? Paul calls it the teaching of demons. And it certainly doesn't reflect the Bible. The Israelites never exalted celibacy as a mark of holiness. And the New Testament in Hebrews 13.4 calls the marriage bed honored. It's holy. It is of God. And so an allegorical interpretation of Song of Solomon wasn't based on intrinsic biblical thinking. It certainly wasn't based on solid hermeneutics and Bible study methods. It was based on an attempt to honor the current philosophical systems of the day. In other words, they interpreted Song of Solomon to make the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics happy, kind of like today people are interpreting the Bible to make proponents of critical race theory happy. And they made a mistake. Let me give you some reasons to reject the allegorical interpretation. I narrowed it down to four. First of all, the obvious sexual language in the book gets really dicey trying to spiritualize those images. It gets really, I mean, you read commentaries that, that take this view and it just gets ridiculous. The Bible does speak of the people of God as his bride, but the Bible never indulges in explicit sexual imagery to go further than that. Never does. The allegorical interpretations now become buffoonish when you try to make the sexual images into something about Christ and about the church, especially when you put Christ in the role of saying the things that Solomon says to Shulamith. It becomes ridiculous. And so the, the obvious language in the book gets really dicey trying to spiritualize those things. There's a second reason to reject the allegorical interpretation view. There's no universally accepted methodology for interpreting the images. There's no, there are no cross-references to aid in interpreting. It's all a guess. How do we know what certain images or types in the Bible mean? Because we see lots of other places in the Bible that explain them. Jesus as the Lamb of God. We don't have to ask the question, why is he the Lamb of God? Well, the Bible explains he's like the Passover Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. He is the, the Lamb who is giving his blood for the forgiveness of sin. So that one's obvious. But in Song of Solomon, there, there are no cross-references. There are no, there's no five other verses that talk about the Rose of Sharon and what that really is. And worse than that, this becomes what is called an argument from authority. 
that because the person making the interpretation is a well-known theologian, it must be correct. What's the problem with that? It's the wrong authority. Just because somebody with a lot of letters after his name says something, it doesn't mean that he's right. It just means he said it. So there's no universally accepted method for interpreting the image, the images. Here's another reason to reject this interpretation. The original readers. Put yourself in the sandals of the original readers in the 10th century B.C. Would the original readers of Song of Solomon have ignored the marriage relationship in the book and skipped directly to one giant picture of Israel and God? They wouldn't have. And let me give you another reason. This is sort of 3A. They wouldn't have done this. Because that would make this a story of fiction. And you know what Hebrews thought of fiction? They viewed fiction as a lie. You couldn't go to the Jewish library in ancient times and find the fiction section. They would call those lies. And definitely the original readers wouldn't have seen the church. The church is a mystery in the Old Testament. So at that point, basically, if you take that view, it makes Song of Solomon useless for a thousand years. Let me give you one more reason. Speaking of a thousand years, every known attempt to allegorize Song of Solomon has occurred beginning, beginning at least 1,000 years after it was written. In other words, nobody until after the birth of Christ said, hey, Song of Solomon might be an allegory. And what was happening in the world at that time? Well, first, the Neoplatonists and the Gnostics were the philosophical rage of the day. And, and there was a battle brewing in two camps of Christianity for a literal interpretation of Scripture, of all of Scripture, and an allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And the allegorical camp, Song of Solomon, was their ace in the hole. They, Song of Solomon was the batter who was batting cleanup. See, this book couldn't possibly be about marriage. It's, it's far too graphic to be something other than Christ in the church. Every known attempt to allegorize Song of Solomon occurred beginning a thousand years after it was written. Who knows better, the author or somebody reading it a thousand years later? I think we would say the author does. Now you might say, well, that's kind of an ancient thing, but frankly, the allegorical interpretation is most likely to be seen in covenant theology circles today. It is a popular view, and I'll explain more about that later. So there's the allegorical interpretation. We'll go faster now. Option number two, the dramatic interpretation. The dramatic interpretation says this is the story of the love between Solomon and Shulamith and that there are two major variations. I mentioned these last time. There's the two-character drama. This is the love between Solomon and Shulamith and they live happily ever after. Or there's the three-character version that this is a story of a love triangle between King Solomon an unnamed country shepherd and Shulamith, and the story goes that Solomon loses the girl. Overall, the book has the feel of a drama. It has the feel of a play. Uh, there isn't a lot of evidence, though, that this genre of literature, the stage play, really existed in the ancient Near East. It, it wasn't really a, a thing. But it does have a plot line. It has characters. It has dramatic tensions. So if it wasn't actually a play, it at least resembles one. So as I mentioned last time, we would take the two-character view. This is the story of Solomon and Shulamith. Uh, it, it's pretty difficult to remain consistent throughout the book, taking the three-character view. And if the story is about Solomon's attempted seduction of the woman and his failure to do so, if that's the real point, what redemptive purpose does it serve? What's the point of the book? The point of the book becomes pointless, really. Then there's option three, the historical interpretation the historical interpretation only makes one point that basically this is an actual event in the life of Solomon, perhaps when he was very young and seeking true love before all the many wives and concubines intruded and swayed him to a less than ideal family life. Then there's option four called the cultic interpretation. The cultic interpretation, and this is probably the most bizarre one, the Song of Solomon is actually borrowed from the erotic literature of the fertility cults of the ancient Near Eastern Canaanite and Babylonian peoples. And the, the, this is the story of Yahweh as merely one of the pantheon of gods. And the book describes his marriage to a goddess. We obviously reject that view on every level possible. Option five may be equally as bizarre that this is a, this is a funeral song. 
This is called the funeral interpretation. Some of you are laughing. I laugh too. Song of Solomon was supposedly written to encourage mourners at funerals, and it's based on one verse, chapter 8, verse 6, that says, Love is strong as death. The Song of Solomon gives you hope that the love that you have for the loved one who has gone on to eternity is still there. Well, frankly, that's the same level of hope that the world gives to one another. Our hope is that we have a reunion together in heaven. So we wouldn't go for that one either. Option six, we could call the wedding interpretation. The Song of Solomon is a wedding ceremony text start to finish in which the seven major sections I've already mentioned represent the seven days of a Near Eastern or an Israelite wedding ceremony. And yes, there's definitely wedding imagery. There's a direct reference to a wedding, chapter 3, verse 11. But it's, I think, forcing the issue to make the whole poem about a wedding ceremony. And then option seven, we could just call the love song interpretation. The love song interpretation says that this is love poetry using Solomon and Shulamith as main characters. We might call it historical fiction, using known historical figures to create a fictional story using those names. And so Solomon uses himself as the main character to write this glorious love poem. And yes, this is most definitely a love song, but getting around the Hebrew disgust for fiction, unless the fiction is said to be fiction and there's a lesson, such as parables, that makes this view a lot less likely that it's merely a fictional love song. So those are all the main options. I'm going to give you our direction and we're going to stick with it from here on out. But again, the main distinction we need to make is that this is not an allegory of God and Israel. This is not an allegory of Christ and the church, but it is God's view of marital love. His teaching on what his intended makeup of human marriage is to be. So here's how I would categorize my approach. And it's a combination of some of these views. So if you're interested, this is what I'm going to call this. Song of Solomon is a dramatic love poem giving the true story of a young Solomon and Shulamith, which includes the time before, during, and after their wedding. So we took about four of those and put them together. Song of Solomon is a dramatic love poem giving the true story of a young Solomon and Shulamith, which includes the time before, during, and after the wedding. And no, Song of Solomon does not explain how this fits with Solomon's countless wives and concubines. And if God wanted us to know that, he would have told us. But the beauty of this is that you can disagree with all of this, except for the allegorical view. And you can still derive tremendous personal benefit and sanctification in the Lord from this letter. That's the beauty of Song of Solomon. Let me put it to you this way. Men, if you wrote a little note to your wife... And one of the words was difficult to read. She couldn't make your handwriting out. And as your wife is reading this kind note, that difficult to read word might say, you are beautiful, or you are delightful, or you are fantastic, or you are perfect, or you are lovely. She would know it was one of those. Would it really matter? It doesn't really matter at that point that she's either beautiful, delightful, fantastic, perfect, or lovely. And we'll take all of those. So, whatever position you take, it is a love poem written as God's view of marriage. So our considerations for tonight, the supernatural structure, the popular positions on on Song of Solomon. But how do we deal with the fact that ultimately all Scripture should lead us to Christ? All Scripture should lead us to the cross. How do we deal with that? So let's talk about the Christ comparison of Song of Solomon. The Christ comparison of Song of Solomon. And again, we reject the view of Song of Solomon as simply an allegory of Christ in the church or God and his people. But it most definitely lends itself to illustration of these relationships. The Old Testament scholar Eugene Merrill suggests that while taking a literal view of the book as speaking of human marital relationships, he says this, quote, It is not exegetically or theologically inappropriate to understand the song as a paradigm or template by which to gain access to a greater love and intimacy, that of the Lord for his creation, and in particular, for mankind created in his image. In other words, the level of closeness, the level of intimacy in relationship 
in Song of Solomon helps us to know how to think about our unsearchable riches of our union with Christ. That we have that, we have that example. What it means to be in Christ. This union with Christ is going to be fully realized in Revelation 19, what, what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb, the total uniting of Christ and all of His church, both in heaven, then in His reign on earth. We also see that Song of Solomon points us toward a model for what we might call sexuality redeemed. It's the story of a return to pure love in the context of marriage. And as I've already mentioned, Song of Solomon counters this false dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual that infiltrates the church even today. And it shows that marriage is a spiritual endeavor. It is part of demonstrating love for God in the way you conduct yourself in your marriage. And yes, Song of Solomon most definitely points us toward God's ideal for his creation of marriage, but the the comparison which the Bible already makes to marriage gives us pause to consider questions like these. How can my walk with Christ emulate the closeness demonstrated between Solomon and Shulamith? I think that's a great question to ask. How can my marriage more closely emulate the ideal of Christ and the church? What are the aspects of the relationship between Solomon and Shulamith that can remind me of the tenderness that God has toward me as one of his own, saved by the blood of Christ? So I think it, it, it sparks a lot of good thought. I noted a moment ago that in Hosea chapter 2, God uses the metaphor of marriage extensively to speak of his relationship to Israel. And there's encouragement for us there as well, which I'll share with you in a moment. But I want you to notice something It's totally obvious here that the metaphor applies to God and Israel because the text says so. You don't have to guess. Just so you know the context here, God is promising that after he punishes and disciplines Israel for her spiritual harlotry and unfaithfulness, he will once again woo her. He will romance her, as it were. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 14, God says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. This is a picture of romance renewed. This is a picture of a a, uh, renewing of vows, so to speak. But more importantly, it's a picture of God's covenant faithfulness proven, that he's always been faithful, even when she's unfaithful. Then the text goes on to talk about when this will happen. Listen for when this is going to happen, when God brings total peace to Israel, and listen for the marriage metaphors. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 16, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. Here's the marriage metaphor again. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. When is this going to happen? It can only be during the millennial reign of Christ. When war is abolished and Israel is restored like an unfaithful wife restored to a patient and forgiving husband. I said there was an encouragement for us in that text. I don't know if you heard it, but the encouragement is from verse 14. I will allure her. You know what that tells us? That is a theologically loaded statement that says that God is the initiator of a relationship with himself. He is the one who works to bring this about. And like God in Hosea 2, and yes, like Solomon in Song of Solomon, God is the originator and the author of the relationship with himself for you and for all who know Christ. Your salvation in Christ came about because God allured you. God came after you. What text tells us this? John chapter three, the Holy Spirit came after you. And why did he do this? According to Ephesians 1, 4, the only motivation we get in all of the Bible for God's electing power, it is in love. In love, he allured you. An undeserving and unmerited love. And like Shulamith, who proclaims her own unworthiness 
as she bemoans in chapter 1 that she's disheveled and sunburnt and certainly not a queenly sight for Solomon at all. Yet Solomon calls her in verse 8 of chapter 1, Oh, most beautiful among women, and he invites her to come to him. He initiates, just as God initiates with you and through Christ views your disheveled, sinful heart as if you possessed the very righteousness and holy beauty of Christ himself. And so we're instructed in the glories and the most delicate and sensual side of marriage in Song of Solomon, and yet the God-ordained illustration of marriage serves to point us to our delight in the Lord and His choice to delight in us. It is a beautiful picture. Supernatural structure, popular positions, Christ comparison. Let's consider the spiritual significance of Song of Solomon. The spiritual significance of Song of Solomon. In an article uh, some time ago by a covenant theologian, he gives what I think is pretty fair to say a representative view of Song of Solomon held by many of our covenant theology brothers. And I'm, I'm not trying to pick one that's out there, outlandish. I think it's pretty representative of the view held by many of our brothers and sisters who hold to the meanings of much of the Old Testament being reinterpreted by the New Testament. And this article is called The Covenantal Approach to Song of Solomon. And the author, quote, tries to prove the Christology the study of Christ, of the greatest of Scripture's redemptive historical songs. Now, I think he makes a very good point. The author rightly reminds us of the loss of fellowship with God as illustrated by Adam and Eve's loss of the Garden of Eden, a fruitful vineyard and garden. But then this is where he goes and try to follow the logic. I, I don't know if you can, I couldn't. The first step toward regaining the Garden of Eden is the construction of the temple. Because in the temple is where you may fellowship with God through sacrifice for sin. The temple was decorated with ornate carvings of trees, flowers, pomegranates, lilies, and cedars. And then the author says, quote, The scriptures teach that all these symbols find a rich fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He doesn't prove that point at all. And I've never seen a verse that says the pomegranate is Jesus. Never seen that. And he says, quote, the door of the physical temple signified the door to the true heavenly temple. Then he says, since the temple was built by Solomon, Solomon, who wrote Song of Solomon as an illustration of God's fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which Solomon thought was really fulfilled in him. And therefore, the Song of Solomon is really about the temple and how this leads to Christ. I, I never understood that. I don't know if you do. But to prove all of this in a long and scholarly article, his only basis is to quote commentators who agree with him. That doesn't prove anything. That's an argument from authority. And then to finish off, he makes one other major comparison. Now, I think this is pretty typical of how an allegorical interpretation, interestingly, he says in the article, uh, we don't want to be accused of allegorical interpretation, but then that's exactly what he does. Song of Solomon 2, verse 14, speaks of the cleft of the rock. And here is his logic. Since God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock when Moses prayed to see God's glory, and since our only real protection is found in Christ, then the cleft of the rock must be Christ. And what is his proof? Quote, Many theologians throughout church history have understood the cleft of the rock to be a typological reference to Christ. That's not a proof. The problem with this approach is that it started with theological assumptions and simply overlaid them onto the text of Scripture, and that's not okay. They're superimposed. None of those conclusions are found by simply observing the text of Song of Solomon. I'd love to give Song of Solomon alone to, to anybody who's never read the Bible and have them read it and have them say, what is this about? They're not going to give an allegorical interpretation. You have to be taught to do that. So if we're not meant to make this wild goose chase from the Garden of Eden to the Song of Solomon to, uh, temple, to the temple to Christ because all of those have something to do with pomegranates and vineyards, what is the spiritual significance? It can be portrayed at times that Song of Solomon is less lofty if it's merely about human marriage. But let me give you some reasons that portraying human marriage is completely lofty and heavenly. I'll give you four or five of them. First of all, again, it fights against the notion that the spiritual is better than the physical. 
It fights against the notion that the spiritual is better than the physical. This is a form of Gnosticism, of, of higher knowledge. It's a form of asceticism, uh, of denying pleasures to yourself because somehow that makes you more godly. And it follows Platonic philosophy from the time before Christ. What is the coming kingdom of Christ going to be like? It's going to be on earth with resurrected saints in physical bodies reigning on earth. The whole separation of the physical from the spiritual is actually part of the curse. What happens when you die? The physical and the spiritual are separated. The undoing of the curse is putting those things back together. See also the resurrection of the saints. So it fights against that notion. Here's another reason that portraying human marriage as heavenly is lofty. Song of Solomon reminds us of the original mandate to mankind. Song of Solomon reminds us of the original mandate of God to mankind. And we've said before, this is the purpose statement of the entire Bible. When we started the Pentateuch a couple years ago, we said this. The purpose statement of the Bible, Genesis 1, beginning in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The union of the husband and wife is the means by which the very mandate to mankind is fulfilled. I'll give you a third reason this is lofty and heavenly in speaking of human marriage. Song of Solomon accurately reflects a pre-fall view of marriage with maybe one little exception in chapter 5. It accurately reflects a pre-fall view of marriage. Genesis 2, 24 and 25, and the location of this text is so important, says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why is the location of this text so important? This is the last statement in the Bible before sin enters into the world. And it's about marriage and about being unashamed. That is the tremendous hope of Song of Solomon. It offers at least a little taste of a pre-fall world, not in the totality of your life, but at least in the most significant relationship you have in this world, and that is with your spouse. There's a fourth reason this is heavenly and lofty as it speaks of human marriage. Song of Solomon teaches us to be like Christ. Song of Solomon teaches us to be like Christ. How, how does it do that? Well, it models the pursuit of love. It models the pursuit of love, the defense of love, the priority of love. When we're following Song of Solomon's example of pursuing and nurturing and watering and feeding the love of our marriage, then we're obeying the New Testament admonitions concerning marriage almost without thinking about it i believe with all of my heart that you as a married couple could study song of solomon having never read the new testament and if you dive in and you love the way solomon loves shulamith and shulamith loves solomon and you do this and do this and do this you could then go to the new testament and see husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands and go oh we're already doing that because Solomon Solomon lays that foundation so clearly. It teaches us to obey, to be like Christ. One more reason that Song of Solomon is lofty and heavenly. It pushes us to the Garden of Eden. It pushes us to the Garden of Eden. Now, we can't go back in time. As much as we would love to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we can't. But it pushes us forward to a future restoration of the perfection of the Garden of Eden. You ever think about this? There are many elements of the Garden of Eden that will be present on the new earth. Did you know that? The throne of God on the earth, a river flowing from the apex, from the, from the center, the tree of life, the unhindered presence of God, perfect human relationships, the cherubim, the angels, the wealth of the earth, gold, jewels, etc. And why this is hopeful? Why is this hopeful? If marriage can come close to a pre-fall state, if you can love one another with a love that seems so intense that it's almost heavenly, not perfect, but delightful and a joy and a union and a unity that feels supernatural in nature, then you get a little flavor, a little reminder that Eden is coming back. That all the glories of a pre-fall world is coming. 
that because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to restore, to redeem, to purchase back all who would place their faith in him, then all the delights of Eden on the new earth someday will be yours. And so Song of Solomon just gives one little slice that Eden is coming back. Song of Solomon does this not because it's an allegory, but because it points us to an ideal that once was lost and now will be regained. One more consideration, we'll just call this the, the thrilling themes of Song of Solomon. The thrilling themes of Song of Solomon. I hope you're eagerly anticipating this book and just to whet your appetite just a little bit. Let me give just some highlights of some of the thrilling themes, the motifs that will appear as regular features here in the book. You have the theme of lovesickness. Lovesickness. You, you think that we invented that? No, God invented that. In chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, Shulamith says, I am sick with love. I'm sick with love. We know how that is. You remember that? The week before my wife and I went out on our very first date, I had a stomach ache all week long because I knew in the back of my mind the, the direction of my life was about to get set. And I knew if it wasn't with her, then the rest of my life would be second best. It was love sickness. You remember that. And so we see that throughout the book. You have the theme of adore. The door in Song of Solomon is, is mysterious because sometimes it represents an opening for love and sometimes it represents slamming the door on love, an obstacle to love. In fact, in the case of young people not ready for love, chapter 8 speaks of boarding up the door. That thing's going to be locked, latched, boarded up, and guarded. You have the theme of the gazelle or stag. Shulamith likens Solomon to the leaping of a gazelle in the mountains, indicating his youth and his vigor and his eagerness to be with her. And and it goes along with the, the pastoral theme, the countryside theme in the book. You have the theme of the kiss. And it might seem obvious in a love love poem, but Song of Solomon begins and ends with a desire for a kiss. It begins with the opening line, let him kiss me, expressing her growing love for Solomon. And it ends with her wishing that she could kiss him in public without incurring the the scorn of everyone around her because nobody wants to see that. But she wishes that she could. You have the bodies of the bride and groom, seemingly endless description of their bodies. And this is probably the number one reason that people say, oh, please don't preach this. We don't want to hear about this. But this is what God inspired Some of the images are obvious and others are more subtle, such as the theme of the vineyard and the garden. Both both of those are used as coy metaphors for the body. Uh, The garden is referred to eight times. Seven of them refer to the bride's body. The vineyard is referred to nine times and at times it speaks of the body or of the relationship, the marriage itself. And any attempt to allegorize or over-spiritualize the vast array of references to the bodies of the lovers is hopelessly outnumbered. And when you read uh, scholars who try to explain what the lips are and what the cheeks are and what the neck is, it, it just starts to get ludicrous. What is the neck? It's a neck. It's that simple. You have the theme of the winning of love. The winning of love. Solomon speaks of having his heart stolen by Shulamith. Song of Solomon 4, verse 9, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. This is a beautiful picture. It's a picture of this. Solomon's just standing around minding his own business. You know, he's looking at a tree or something. Who knows what he's doing? And Shulamith walks by. And as she walks by, he happens to look and she just does this. And he keeps walking. And he's done. He's like floating after her. You're the love of my life at this point. And she won him. You have the theme of horses and chariots. Put yourself 3,000 years ago. Those are important features. Chapter 1, verse 9, Solomon compares Shulamith to a horse. Now, don't worry. He's being complimentary, and we'll see that when we get to it. Solomon comes to his wedding in a procession and in some sort of chariot or carriage. This is an image of manly valor and of splendor and of strength. And then you have the theme of precious metals for arms and legs. 
Shulamith says that Solomon has arms of gold and legs of gold. In other words, she values him. She values him. We have thrilling, thrilling themes ahead of us. Now, I promised you I would give assignments if you so choose at the end of every message, and I want to give you an assignment, particularly if you're married. If you're married, I want to encourage you to spend at least one time in prayer with your spouse this week to ask the Lord to make this series a blessing to you, to bless you. I mean, what a shame it would be to remain unaffected and unchanged, right? So take advantage of this. We're serving up a better marriage and righteousness and holiness on a silver platter. So if you'll commit to this, and I don't care if you've been married four months, four years, or 40 years, Song of Solomon will make your marriage better. God placed this book here for you and to have you more accurately reflect the love of Christ that he has for the church and the adoration that the church is to have for Christ. And so I hope that you'll do that and pray about that this week and take this opportunity We're going to spend, I don't know if I should tell you this in advance, I guess I will. We're going to spend 17 more messages in Song of Solomon. I told you last time we're going to make this like a cafe in Paris and we're going to enjoy every course and every part of the meal and I hope that you will be along for the whole journey. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this time we've had tonight and we pray, God, that the promises that the Word of God makes Isaiah says that the word will not return void, but it will accomplish that for which it was sent. I pray that would be the case. I pray that on an earthly level, that you would make the marriages in our church more accurately reflect the biblical standard. For those who are uh, before or beyond a time of being married in their lives, I pray it would still encourage them, Lord. It is the word of God useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And at an even higher level, Lord, I pray that as we pursue these ideals, we would be stunned once again at the grace and the love that Christ has shown to us. That in love, he came after those, we who were sunburnt, as it were, by sin, who were stained by our own iniquity. And yet in love, he chose us before the foundation of the world. And we give thanks for you for that love. And I pray that Song of Solomon reminds us of that depth of love, Lord, as reflected in our relationship with Christ. Thank you for those here listening tonight. I pray this is a blessing to them in the coming weeks as we begin this journey together. We pray in Christ's name, amen.